All right. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we talk about opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, and we're glad that you tuned in. We are a national campaign that advocates for stronger federal policies that expand affordable housing for the lowest income people. But what makes us different is that we're bringing together new voices from other sectors to help us do it. Sectors like health, education, civil rights, anti-poverty, anti-hunger, faith-based, and more. These sectors are increasingly realizing that they can't fully achieve their own goals and priorities if the people they serve lack access to safe, decent, affordable housing. So we're building a multi-sector coalition and we're broadening the housing movement. This podcast really explores the connections between housing and all of these other sectors. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, criminal justice policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. But being able to afford a decent home is a prerequisite for opportunity in America. The promises that our elected leaders make every election cycle, better health, better economic opportunity, better education, those things can only be fulfilled if people have access to good affordable homes in which to live. So we talk to research experts, we talk to leading advocates from different sectors, and we talk to elected officials. I hope you enjoy and hope you learn something too. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode. We're going to talk about the intersections between affordable housing and criminal justice reform. Uh, criminal justice reform has been an elevated conversation of late. Uh, the presidential candidates are releasing plans. Uh, a few weeks ago, President Trump spoke at a criminal justice reform forum in South Carolina. Uh, the topic has been featured uh, prominently in the news media. So what we're going to talk about today is, is first, you know, the, the mass incarceration crisis itself, and then drill into how affordable housing is central uh, to criminal justice reform efforts. Uh, and what we'll discuss is how it's really hard to do uh, criminal justice reform well if you lack affordable housing. And so to discuss this with us, we have two experts, Dylan Hare, who's a senior policy advisor at Just Leadership USA, and Mel Wilson, a senior policy consultant at the National Association of Social Workers. Uh, both Just Leadership USA and the National Association of Social Workers, they're both members of the Opportunity Starts at Home Steering Committee, which is awesome. Uh, we're thankful that their organizations are you know, helping, to, uh, helping us to push for housing policy solutions. They certainly understand these intersections, and so uh, we're really happy to have both of them here today. So uh, welcome, Dylan and, and Mel, and I'll uh, quickly, I'll, I'll introduce Dylan, um, and then he can tell us a little bit about what's not in the official bio. Uh, but Dylan has, he served as a, a prosecutor, a defense attorney, a community organizer, so he's seen firsthand uh, the criminal legal system. He had a law practice called Lawyers for Soldiers uh, to represent veterans in civil and criminal litigation. He had a run for state senate in Massachusetts and just all-around good guy. So, Dylan, welcome, and uh, go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, what's not in the official bio? Hey, Mike, thanks so much for, for having me, and I appreciate the kind words. Um, 
You know, I think the bio captures a lot of the experience I've had in terms of seeing uh, these issues play out from multiple angles, right? The criminal legal system stuff certainly was front and center in my work as a prosecutor and as a defense attorney. But I think one thing that's really not captured there um, that may be important to, do, to today's conversation is that I actually started my legal career in housing. Um, mm. In my first year uh, in law school, my first, my 1L summer internship, uh, I worked at a legal aid organization in central Massachusetts uh, where I defended uh, families and people experiencing poverty from eviction. And okay. the, one of the reasons that was so deeply inspiring in my work, just to put it out there as hopefully a, a light frame on today's talk, is that the one commonality that everyone had when they were coming through that eviction process is that each of them either had been or had a family member who had been impacted by the criminal legal system. And that yeah. was really where the start of this work sort of, um, you know, where, where this work started for me and, and sort of gave me some initial insight into what this intersection looks like and the damage that, that's been done to families across the country. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Dylan. Um, so let me let me turn it now over to, to Mel. Um, Mel has worked for the National Association of Social Workers since 2006 with a particular focus on social justice and human rights. So that includes criminal justice, immigration reform, economics, voting rights, etc. Uh, he has extensive experience working with national coalitions that deal with criminal justice policy. So Mel, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, thanks, Mike, for having me and, and the National Association of Social, Social Workers. Very happy to participate in this podcast. About myself, I go back a long ways uh, working around issues of affordable housing, in particular dealing with the issue of homelessness. Many years ago, I was with an organization called Healthcare for the Homeless that focused mm -hmm. a great deal, almost exclusively, on the uh, health needs and behavioral health needs of homeless individuals in Washington, D.C. So I have a close relationship with the issue. Uh, back in those days, we also dealt with individuals who were severely mentally ill who wound up in jail and part of my job as a social worker is actually do outreach in the jail even before mm -hmm. it was sexy to do that. Yeah. So uh, it was something that we recognized back then as being extremely important and recognizing that intersection uh, between housing and justice involved individual and the needs of those individuals. Uh, so here at the NASW for the 13-14 years that I've been here uh, I've dealt with the broad range of, as you mentioned, the coalitions and, and recognizing that we must all all work around these intersections and work to resolve some of these problems. So I'm happy to be a part of this uh, conversation and hopefully I can add something to it. Okay, uh, so let's uh, transition into the topic at hand. Um, I want to start by just establishing a few baselines around the mass incarceration crisis. Uh, we have 5% uh, of the world's population, but 25% of the world's total prison population. The U.S. has the highest prison population rate in the world. We incarcerate 2 million people. There are 4 million people under correctional supervision. Uh, I mean, this is what we call the mass incarceration crisis. So, um, Dylan and Mel, I want you to, to help us um, understand the scale of the mass incarceration crisis. And maybe we can start with uh, you, Dylan. Sure. And so, you know, those numbers really paint a pretty dire picture, right? As you said, 2.3 million people who are in jail or prison, 4.5 million people are under some form of supervision. 
Um, when you dive into that world a little bit, you see that supervision, probation, and parole are actually fueling and driving mass incarceration. Um, they are in no way serving as a pathway out of the system for people. There are 70 million-plus people in this country with an arrest record. Uh, a recent study found that one out of every two adults in the country has been incarcerated or has a family member who's been incarcerated. I mean, the numbers are just astronomical, right? And a lot of this is the product, if not all of it, is the product of deliberate policy choices over the past several decades. And I think that's a really key point for people to recognize, that we did not wind up in this crisis of mass criminalization, mass incarceration, mass supervision. We did not wind up here by accident. We got here because we have made very deliberate choices over the last 40, 50, and 60 years to criminalize certain people, to marginalize certain communities, and then to tag on top of that the total disenfranchisement of people. You know, so what we're going to talk about today, obviously, is the effect that having a criminal record can have on your ability to find housing, right? But even beyond housing, it limits your ability to obtain educational opportunities, to find employment, which is an obvious one a lot of people know about. Most people who have a criminal record can't vote, can't serve on juries. I mean, this cycle sort of is built to repeat itself, and the harms are built to sort of set in in a very systemic and generational way. And so even while those numbers that you, that you said, Mike, they, they capture a big part of the story, a lot of that story is also captured in sort of the extraneous consequences that exist beyond those numbers. And when yeah. you start talking to people who've been in the system, you start talking to people from these communities that are over-policed and over-arrested and over-prosecuted, you see that, yeah, the numbers matter, and they're big, and they should compel us all to action, but the hurt that's happening every single day, I think, is just as, if not more, compelling. Um, and that's what we're seeing across the country, particularly when it comes to people who are just trying to find a place to live. Yeah. That's a, so I want to hit back on that stat that you mentioned, Dylan. One in two adults have either been incarcerated or know someone who has been. I mean, that is, that is unbelievable. Um, Did did I get that right? Yep. I'm uh, just pulling up the site now as we talk, actually, Mike. Yeah. uh, A study from forward.us that, um, yeah, essentially says that approximately 113 million people have an immediate family member who's formerly or currently incarcerated. Um, yeah. And I would just say, too, that a lot of that is probably uniquely concentrated or particularly concentrated uh, in black and brown communities or communities that are already economically vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and, and again, yeah. that cycle of marginalization and removal just repeats generation after generation. Yep. And we're going to get more into the uh, sort of the disparate impact on, on certain populations here in a minute. Um, so, uh, Mel, did you have anything to, so. to add yeah, to this? Not. Yeah, I mean, Dylan really, really nailed it in terms of giving the background. I think the piece I would add to it is just the issue of, of obviously racial disparities, but really focusing on the fact that a lot of individuals who wound up in jail, and part of those statistics were young men who are very, very poor and very yeah. undereducated. So you have these compounding factors that have just kind of just gone through a vicious cycle of individuals who are in the system, bounce out of the system, don't have stabilization in the community, sometimes don't, certainly don't have housing stabilization, and it's all driven by uh, a poverty to a larger degree, and also, of course, race. But, for instance, when we look at bail reform and the need mm-hmm. for bail reform and the number of individuals wind up staying in jail uh, for uh, three, four months on a minor charge 
that they would have walked with for lack of being able to, to make bail. So the criminalization of, of poverty is a factor that just simply can't be ignored. So I, I think that as we talk, we need to touch on those areas. Yeah, absolutely. What is driving this, as, as Dylan uh, alluded to, is um, public policy, that this is, you know, the, the U.S. population is not uniquely troublesome. Um, this is a direct consequence of, of policy, that if you look at, you know, victimization rates in America, it's no different than Western Europe, uh, and there it just doesn't appear to be a correlation between actual crime committed and, and prison rates. So um, so I wanted to, and Dylan set this up well, um, I want to talk about the, the sort of the modern history of public policies that have created today's situation. It didn't happen by accident. Um, so I'm going to sort of share my understanding, um, and, and you both correct me if I'm wrong on anything here, because this isn't my area of expertise, but my understanding is that um, crime rates were uh, increasing in the 60s and 70s, and crime was uh, a top voter concern in the 70s. And so we basically enacted you know, get tough on crime policies throughout the 70s and 80s, uh, you know, sentencing laws and mandatory minimums and mandatory drug sentences and three strike laws. And there were bipartisan majorities that ushered these through. It was uh, pretty popular in terms of public opinion. And we still largely live with this today. We still largely have these tough on crime policies uh, uh, from decades ago. Is that, uh, you know, is that an accurate characterization? I'll, I'll say something, and then Dylan can jump in. One of the things to, to probably make a point, and you're right, uh, during the period of time that you're, you're uh, outlining there, uh, there was that increase of public policy and, and fear and reaction to, to uh, what was perceived to be a crime that's run amok in the country. Mm-hmm. And it was bipartisan. Certainly Clinton and others uh, uh, had strong crime bills that were very detrimental uh, to uh, African Americans and Hispanics, but we need to look at too that it just didn't pop up then. There's a his- history that goes back to slavery, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, dealing with uh, the reaction to crime and given communities, and it's been a part of our fabric for a long time. So public policy in, in the form of laws, yes, that exists, and it, it got increased in the uh, 70s and the 80s, but. Uh, de facto laws and, and de, uh, de facto policies that discriminated uh, against these populations uh, was something to look at, and it does constitute as being policy at that time. So we don't want to mm-hmm. isolate just that period as being right, the period right. to start with. Yeah, that the many of the ugliness that we'll talk about today, the 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 racism, the systemic discrimination, of course, goes back to the very inception of this country. So uh, yes, thank you, Mel, for that. Dylan, did you want to chime in? Sure. I mean, I would just echo what Mel said, and I would just add two sort of quick points on top of that. Number one, the decision to use criminalization and the idea of criminality as a response to what was, for many people, a very uh, severe crisis, um, that didn't have to be the choice that we took, right? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of reason to believe that that was the choice we took because it came on the heels of civil rights victories uh, Mm. just prior to that, right? that this was in many ways this tough on crime episode that we're still kind of living in was our direct response to some of the successes that advocates and community organizers from black and brown communities across the country had enjoyed just leading into this era, right? Yeah. And the second thing to point out 
Um, and, and if your listener is interested in diving into this, I suggest checking out some of the work that Bruce Western is doing. Um, Dr. Western's a, a professor at Columbia, director, co-director of the Justice Lab over there. Um, and he was one of the first people to really show that the uh, rates of incarceration and rates of crime really bear no uh, sort of causal effect on one another. In fact, even as incarceration continued to climb, so too did incidents of crime for a long, long time. In fact, there's reason to believe that while incarceration not only didn't solve quote-unquote crime, it may actually have perpetuated it in a lot of communities, in part because of the cyclical nature of the harm that happens when you're incarcerated, right? You're put into a position where you're all of a sudden cut off from opportunities and necessities in your community, and you have a limited series of responses you can take in order to sort of just survive, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that sort of showing those graphs side by side, which obviously we can't do on the on the podcast, but I hope people look up and, and check out, will show you that um, we made the problem worse, right? And only mm -hmm. in reducing incarceration in the last few years have we started to think about making that problem a little bit better. I want to get into sort of what, I mean, what crimes are we talking about here, right? We, you know, we, we shared some of the numbers, 2 million people incarcerated, 4 million under some form of supervision. Uh, you know, my understanding is a lot of this, um, you know, we're, we're talking about a big chunk of people who are charged with stuff that, that doesn't really justify jail or prison. We're talking about uh, low level, nonviolent stuff, uh, things that really are unnecessary to lock people up for. Is that? Yeah, I, I think, think you're on target with that. You know, I'm not going to give you the exact data, but we all know that the explosion of the prison population had to deal with drug policy and laws uh, around uh, of, of drug crimes, and most of the, many of them were nonviolent uh, crimes, and, and the yeah. uh, prison population exploded. Uh, there is movement right now uh, towards decriminalization, for instance, on, on marijuana, uh, and that we, as uh, sure Dylan and NESW, is very much involved with trying to get policies that recognize that they can't continue to criminalize. Uh, uh, crime, so-called crimes, that have more to do with human behavior. And we need to focus on that. One of the things I wanted to bring up on, on this year of policy and, and relatedly is that that old uh, transition from rehabilitation as a model for uh, working with those incarcerated to absolute punishment. And we went that direction towards punishment and it's proved to be disastrous. And we do need to when we look at policy, we look at that whole rehabilitation side of it and deal with issues around uh, behavioral health, those things that can be dealt with without going to jail, right. uh, those who are severely mentally ill or those who have disabilities or cognitive impairments. So those, that intersection again around rehabilitation, punishment are, are policy areas that we just need to, to address and that decriminalization to the point that you made earlier about these, many of these crimes being nonviolent crimes that, that certainly could lend themselves to uh, other interventions. Yeah, and I would just say on top of that, Mike, that if you look at uh, the, the, the state prison's population, right, so there's a difference mm -hmm. between jail, um, which is typically where people go when they're awaiting trial or they have very short sentences, and then prison where people go yeah. for longer sentences, you know. About half of the population of people in state prisons do have what we consider violent charges. Um, and obviously that means that about half don't, right? So yeah. there's that. But even within that group of folks who have those quote-unquote violent charges, um, 
you know, the two things I would say to folks who may not be as familiar with this issue are, number one, uh, I can tell you from my perspective as a former prosecutor and someone who does this work, uh, it is pretty easy to drum up what you'd consider a violent charge off um, what we'd consider a pretty baseline set of facts, um, that most charges are based on the decisions that police and prosecutors make. Now, some aren't, right? Some are clearly there's something, a, a bad thing that happens. Yeah. Um, but even there, the second thing I'd say is that we have to recognize that uh, hurt people hurt people, and there's a lot of data to show that people, even if they have violent charges, were themselves a victim of a traumatizing act in the very recent past. And so um, just to look at a group of people and say, oh, these are violent or nonviolent, that maybe captures the story to some limited sense. But if you just look at the totality of the population or people who are incarcerated, number one, a vast, vast, vast majority of them are still coming home. And number two, even the people who have charges that we find maybe hard to wrap our minds around, it's still worth investing our own time and compassion into understanding how people get there, what happens, and what alternatives might have existed before prison and jail even came into play. Uh, Dylan, we, you've made this point to me before in our many prior conversations, but um, you know, oftentimes if you turn on the TV or whatever, you hear people talk about the broken uh, criminal justice system, but actually it, it's it's working as designed. Um, and that's, uh, that's the real tragedy of it is it's not, it's not necessarily broken. It's doing exactly what it was designed to do. Um, and on that note, I want to uh, turn now more to, uh, something that we, we already talked about briefly, but I want to drill more into it, which is that you can't talk about this, um, this crisis, uh, without talking about poverty and race and, you know, uh, certain populations such as the LGBTQ community. Um, you know, we, we know that, that low-income people of color are uniquely impacted by all of this, whether it's, you know, getting pulled over or getting locked up, um, you know, uh, court fees or whatever that they can't afford, which gets them into further trouble. There's, you know, lab processing fees for drug tests. So, I'm hoping you can help us understand the disproportionate impact uh, of the criminal legal system on uh, low-income people, people of color, and other other populations too, such as uh, you know the LGBTQ community. Uh, let me stop on on something on on the LGBT community just briefly, okay. uh, and and the, the concern about the trans populations uh, that tend to be much poorer tend to be also minorities and uh, are exposed to extreme amount of, of violence when they go into jails and many of them wind up in, in, in the jail system. There is a prejudice to that, to that population uh, around health care within jails, around being treated with equality and respect when they are incarcerated uh, and they're often forgotten. I, I, I certainly recognize the issue of race and, and and we'll talk about that. I didn't want to lose focus on that population, particularly the trans population, that, that, that the level of violence that they're exposed to uh, that we, we just have to address. And there is a major, major policy issue around uh, the administrators of prisons and jails and learning how to do training and recognizing when they need to do some protective action to make sure that they aren't exposed to that, that degree of, of, uh, of discrimination and, and, and danger that they wind mm -hmm. up uh, being exposed to. Uh, having said that, certainly the issue of, of race has been around time immemorial and, and has been 
one of the, the issues that, that, that from, from the point of arrest that we have to look at be prior to incarceration, uh, where there is that implicit prejudice, uh, implicit racism that happens in those uh, uh, police encounters. Uh, so the recognition of, of, of that kind of, of, of racism and how they're treated as they move through that system sort of gives you an indication of why the numbers explode for uh, black and brown, uh, uh, young, mostly young men, but certainly many more uh, young women are winding up in the same situation. Dylan, did yeah, you have anything? Yeah, the one thing that, that, yeah, sure, I can just say this, and, and let's just be clear about the fact, too, and I know, Mike, you and I talk about this all the time. One of the biggest challenges in understanding the magnitude and severity of these problems is the lack of data. Um, and I would just urge any one of your listeners who knows somebody who works in the criminal legal system to, to compel them to release their data. A lot of these organizations and the agencies have it, but for a lot of complicated and, and frankly sometimes political reasons, they don't want to release it, right? But what we do know paints a pretty clear picture of this fact. The criminal legal system is exceptionally good at exacerbating underlying harms, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. within the disparities that exist across this country, black men and brown men fare worse than white men, black women fare worst of all, right? And that's, a, that's particularly true when we talk about housing insecurity amongst formerly incarcerated people. We know that across the country, uh, facilities continue to operate on gender binaries between men and women, and that's just not the world we live in right now, right? And so there needs to be some real conversation about that. Facilities that do... Uh, jail and detain or, or incarcerate women are dealing with problems in terms of not having suitable hygiene products for women or, you know, shackling while pregnant is an issue that's, that's um, taken root across the country because it happens still in a lot of facilities. So, you know, I guess I, I, we could have a whole nother podcast just about sort of what these disparities look like. But I think the one thing we should take away is that uh, there really isn't a single problem that exists in the community that isn't made worse when the criminal legal system gets involved. Can, can I really quickly echo sure. what Dylan said about data? Uh, that, that is something that, that really, really is important. Uh, I was at a, a briefing just recently. I don't remember exactly who put it on, but they talked a lot. And over the years, we've been dealing with this. The issue of getting a uniform, national uniform data sets that's able to be disaggregated, almost by law to make it disaggregated, where you can separate out race, gender, all those kinds of important demographics that many jurisdictions do not have and often refuse even to move towards uh, getting disaggregated data. They don't want it necessarily to be tracked and, yeah. and, and being able to define and recognize where some of the areas of uh, uh, disparities exist. But there needs to be much more of a voice pushing for these jurisdictions to begin and moving towards a, a national database that uh, uh, is able to be used and shared amongst uh, the different uh, uh, states and with the federal government to be able to analyze where those needs are. And that doesn't exist right now. So Dylan is, is really, really right on time with that, that uh, statement. Yeah, thanks, Mel. Um, so, so we've, you know, I think we've established that um, we have we have a really serious problem, and that and that it's a it's a unique problem um, in the United States that we are uniquely punitive. Um, and even when you control for variables like 
victimization rates and social service spending, whatever you know, variables you want to control for, uh, no matter how you slice it, uh, we incarcerate people at really, really high rates. Um, and even it, what I found interesting was that even when crime rates go down, incarceration rates don't necessarily drop with it. Um, so what I wanted to do now is kind of pivot a little bit more to the, the housing piece here. Um, and we'll sort of slowly get to housing. But, but first I wanted to um, ask you about, you know, I mean, it's well established that the U.S. spends relatively little on social services, right? Um, that includes housing, but it's also substance abuse, it's mental health, it's a, it's a whole array of things. Um, and we know that, you know, as a nation, we spend relatively little on uh, social services. So it, it seems to me at least like, you know, the default has been, well, you know, lock them up, um, that, that we sort of rely on jails and prisons for a lot of people that just don't need to be there. Um, and if we actually had the services available to meet the need, uh, it would make a lot more sense to rehabilitate with services. Um, is that an accurate characterization that we've that just an over-reliance on jails and prisons in large part because of our chronic underinvestment in social services? Well, as a, as a social worker and, and uh, <laughs> representing NASW, yeah, I mean, you, you, that, that's, that's exactly true. I, I alluded to it earlier about uh, the, this always this argument between rehabilitation and punishment, and it's been an ebb and flow over, over many years. And it does need to go back to that rehabilitation uh, model uh, and, and the investment into uh, social services. And that's services within the institutions, but also as they transition out and, and back into the community. And housing, we, we're, we're going to talk about housing, but we are talking about comprehensive core, comprehensive core services that includes mm -hmm. housing, yeah. financial assistance, uh, uh, support for medical and, and uh, behavioral health needs. But there has been not a full commitment to really funding comprehensive services that are proven to be effective in creating stabilization and reducing recidivism. Yeah, and I would just say it's it's not just a lack of financial commitment, but it's also an unwillingness to really understand the problems, right? I mean, mm -hmm. to go back to what we said a minute ago, the overlap between people who do harm and who've been harmed is enormous. And so we need to recognize that there are socioeconomic factors at play. Um, in those moments, in those in those traumatizing incidences uh, that happen across the country every day, um, but yeah, I mean the criminal legal system is very quickly and easily deployed as as a go-to quote-unquote solution, um, when in reality it's you know it's a lot more effective from a humane perspective and certainly from a financial perspective um, to intervene more directly. And I'll say you know the one thing that we sometimes hear when we do this work um, is you know could we really get there? Could we? Could we really invest in communities that are um, built on health and hope and that offer opportunities to people? Could we really, is that even achievable? I mean, it just, it's a country that's a, it's a big, diverse country. And the one thing I say is that we seem to have figured that out for white, wealthy communities across the country in large part. Like, this is not a question of do we know what to do or can we do it? It's a question of are we willing to? Um, and so for people who say the solutions aren't out there or that, you know, it's just too big of a challenge, it, the reality is that it's not, right? The reality is that we continue to make choices. As you were just saying, Mike, we continue to look at a problem and say, oh, what can we do from a criminal legal perspective to mm -hmm. intervene there? 
um, whether it's hiring more cops or putting more prosecutors out there or just, you know, adding new charges. I mean, not to get way off track, but I saw, I don't even remember where it was, but there was some county that a few weeks before Halloween decided to make it a criminal charge if you're over 14 or something like that and still trick-or-treating. I mean, what, really? Like, that's that's yeah. the best we can do is to yeah. just punish kids like that? And it just, it speaks to a larger underlying cultural mentality that continues to grip policymakers at, at all levels in this country. So... I wanted to um, drill down specifically now to the affordable housing uh, criminal justice connection. Um, and here there are, you know, many connections. And I think, um, I, you know, I think of it as sort of a, a vicious cycle um, where housing problems cause problems with the criminal legal system and encounters with the criminal legal system cause housing problems. Uh, so I kind of wanted to talk about the, the first phenomenon. I know it's a cycle, but let's sort of focus on that on that first phenomenon, uh, which is that housing problems cause problems uh, with the criminal justice system. Uh, you know, so first, housing problems are often a big reason why people get involved with the criminal justice system in the first place, right? Like, like their initial arrest. Um, you know, when people are stably housed, they have fewer recorded um, offenses. Um, you know, so, so if you aren't stably housed, if you're struggling to keep a roof over your head, if your income is eaten up by rent, you're more likely to commit what I've heard some people refer to as, you know, survival crimes or poverty-related offenses. Um, things like, you know, minor theft or trespassing or loitering. Um, if you can't afford uh, necessary medicine for your kid, you, you steal it. Or um, or the same thing goes with food. Um, these are low-level, nonviolent offenses that, because of our get-tough policies, often lead to incarceration. Um, there's also, we know that, you know, if your housing is located in a high-poverty area, you know, your chances of being associated with a crime increase. You may be a victim or uh, or a witness, you might be accused because you were in the proximity of where something went down. Um, wondering if you could talk about some of these survival crimes. Yeah, I, I was about to focus on the issue of homelessness that gets into uh, clearly unstable housing and no housing, and that leads right into those survival crimes where someone's on the street, and uh, if you've ever been in and around homeless shelters, uh, there's a, a lot of low-level crime that, it, that happens there. It might be simple uh, possession of, 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 of drugs or mm -hmm. a fight or something that a person ends up in jail because of unstable housing, unstable housing, winding up in, in a situation that is both dangerous and really, as you say, deals with survival. Survival in terms of your own protecting yourself and survival in terms of getting your next meal. Uh, so it definitely exacerbates um, the possibility of someone winding up in jails. That brings up the whole issue of jails because most of these individuals, women, women and uh, men, wind up in jails. Housing is a critical piece to that. And it has also to deal with that instability within their family structure once that breaks down. If they don't have the housing, they're much more vulnerable to getting into a situation where they wind up uh, being arrested or, or locked up for a minor crime. Yeah. Uh, homelessness drives 
criminalization and, and, and incarceration crisis in much the same way that those crises drive homelessness, right? Mm-hmm. So just to focus on the first half of that, I mean, let's start with people who are experiencing homelessness, right, which I probably is the, the height of housing insecurity. And a lot of cities and states across the country, being homeless or experiencing homelessness is a criminal act. Um, just the ver- just the sort of the act of being on the sidewalk or being in a place you're not supposed to be to try to get some rest, yeah. you can be arrested and charged for that. So, again, we're off to the races there, right, with all the mm-hmm. consequences that happen. But even beyond that, let's say you're able to find housing, um, but to your point, Mike, it's not affordable, right? So most of your income is being, being driven there or, you know, uh, it, it ends up being a situation where you're in housing that is – relatively low income in terms of the overall population and therefore just to make a generalization but one that's based on data and research uh you're living in a community that's probably being surveilled or targeted by local law enforcement for a whole host of issues right and that can disrupt your housing security and being even remotely you know just physically near that area or in that area can result in your being wrapped up in stuff i mean we have a number of stories from new york city alone of people who we're living in a housing community that was being targeted by police that was the subject of a gang raid or something like that. And these yeah. people who have had never had any involvement ever in the legal system end up getting roped into this thing. And then, again, off the races with the consequences, right? But then even beyond that, you're able to find housing, you're able to afford housing, um, you're able to somehow survive housing that's targeted by police and prosecutors. I mean, you know this better than I do, Mike, right? But even people who are able to – even people who have a grip on housing, it, it can – it can evaporate pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. Right? You're yeah. a job loss or, or a sickness away from having to make some really hard decisions. Um, and to your point, Mike, you know, people are going to survive, right? Like, as a species, we are going to find a way to survive. Right. Um, and I just think it doesn't make a lot of sense to make that survival as hard and as punishable as possible, which is kind of what we've done for people who, to your initial question, are experiencing housing insecurity in some form. Yep. Yeah. And that, I mean, these are. These are the types of, you know, these survival crimes where I would do the exact same thing for my kids and my family. And, and any one of us in these sorts of situations would do it for for survival. Um, and that's the that's the tragedy of it. Um, and then I, I was thinking back to um, a statistic, uh, Dylan, that you shared with me um, way back when Just Leadership uh, joined the campaign. But it was it was something like houseless arrests we're close to 20% of all total arrests. So I'll say that again. Houseless arrests were close to 20% of all total arrests, which really speaks to uh, the criminalization of, of homelessness and, and how bad it's gotten. I also want to ask you both about um, the, the people that are that are left behind I don't know if that's the right way to say it but but you know mom or dad um, become incarcerated and and uh, and it's suddenly a one-income household right and there's people who were relying on two incomes so they were relying on the the support from the person who is now incarcerated and so the rent uh, you know might have been barely affordable with two incomes and now um, there's one income and it's no longer affordable. So they have to you know, move to a cheaper neighborhood. The kid uh, might have to change schools. Um, so it seems like this is, not seems like, it, it is a huge deal um, for the people who are, who are in their lives. Uh, can you talk a little bit about 
that dynamic, that this is not just something that impacts um, the individual in question. This is somebody, this is something that has many spillover impacts in all the people that are close to them. Yeah, I, I, that's a really important part of the issue. It really gets into us beginning to talk about women who wind up uh, incarcerated because mm-hmm. often uh, the woman who is, is a head of household and, and may in a situation where have children or maybe a single mother, and if that mother does get arrested for any period of time, maybe for something minor and they, they just go, they go to jail, and there's no other support. Those children wind up in the child welfare system. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that we certainly look at from that child welfare perspective of what does happen if there is an arrest and if there is a, let's say, over one month period of time uh, that that child not only is not with the mother, she may lose that marginalized housing that she had before right. because she's arrested. Now she's in in either at imminent risk of homelessness or actually homeless. So even if there's a reunification with the child, uh, the housing is unstable. Mm-hmm. They might be in the family shelter. Neighborhoods change. If the kids at school age kid, kid in kindergarten, first grade, they have to change schools. So there is this kind of uh, a ripple effect uh, that impacts that family. And, and we need to focus on that impact on children of uh, uh, parents who have been uh, incarcerated or are in the system or even on parole and probation, that there is that residual impact. And that's the housing stability is really critically important because, again, if there, even if it's not the best housing in the world, if someone can be with their family in the same neighborhood for a period of time in the same school, it is much better, more beneficial to the outcomes uh, a long-term outcome for those children. So that's mm-hmm. something that we, we, we certainly need to put much more resources and, and much more data collection again around how that does impact, uh, especially children. Thanks, Mal. Dylan, what say you? So whenever one person in a family is impacted by incarceration, right, and it goes to what, what, what you were talking about, what Mel was talking about, it impacts everyone in that family, right? So obviously, Mike, the loss of an income is enormous, right? But remember, too, that that loss of income is probably not temporary. That's, a pro- that's probably going to be a long-standing loss, right. given the consequences that result from having been incarcerated, right? Yeah. And then even beyond the financial loss, right, the harm that results, I mean, not to conflate two crises or emergencies in this country, but the reality is there's a lot of overlap. There was a lot of headlines these past few months about child separation and family separation at the southern border, southern border yeah. of this country. Yeah. Family separation has been the go-to guiding principle of the criminal legal system in this country for 50 years, mm. right? Yeah. And so you saw firsthand what happens when it's immigrant communities, people who are just trying to make it into this country in the first place. But the fact is that those exact same harms get replicated in black and brown communities across the country every single day. And so, you know, children who have a family member who is incarcerated, statistically more likely to be incarcerated in their lifetime. And then the person who's, you know, not incarcerated, whether it's mom or dad or big brother or something who's left at home, even aunt or uncle, again, to the earlier conversation, like forced to make drastic choices to just just to keep their family together and to survive. And also... You might lose housing just because someone you know is incarcerated anyway, right? So there's a lot of private landlords in this country who are going to find a way to evict you if there has been some allegation of quote-unquote criminal wrongdoing in your unit. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so not only are you out an income, and not only is your, are you and your loved ones kind of without a family member, you might have lost the one source of stability you even had to begin with. Right. Um, and I'm only, I'm laughing because if I'm not laughing, I'm crying, right? I mean, it's just, and I, you and I, again, Mike, we talk about this all the time, right? But the cyclical nature of this harm is astounding. Um, mm-hmm. And it's almost like, it, it, it's, it's built with such precision in some ways, right? It's almost, it's hard not to see how this is almost deliberate. That when one thing happens to one person in your family, it happens to everyone. I mean, one thing we talk about at Just Leadership is the idea that people are not incarcerated, but families are. Because if you have someone who's incarcerated, you are serving alongside them. I mean, visitation becomes difficult. The cost of maintaining visitation, the cost of giving, getting them things they need while they are incarcerated because they can't afford it from inside the facility. I mean, again, it, it just adds a whole new level of strain um, to what may already be a pretty tenuous situation, particularly if, to the crux of this conversation, housing and security and housing affordability were issues that you were already struggling with before the criminal legal system even got there. Um, so again, I mean, I know that we're kind of, I, I know that I'm kind of being redundant in, in some of the stuff I'm saying, but the, the reality is this is a cycle, and it repeats not just within a family, but over the course of generations, um, yeah. where the children and the children, you know, and whole communities are suffering from what result what, what from what probably started as a single arrest or a couple arrests um and then problems that were left unaddressed that 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 began from there yeah longitudinal impact it's it's cyclical and it's lifelong and and dylan you set up my my next question uh very well um so you know we've we've established that when you're struggling with housing in the first place it can give you problems with the criminal justice system uh, and then once you get involved with the criminal justice system, it makes your housing problems even worse. It compounds. It's a vicious cycle. So I want to uh, now hone in on sort of the, the second part of that cycle, which is um, people that are that are returning from uh, prison or jail or some form of encounter with the, uh, with the criminal legal system, and now they have a record, um, oftentimes for low-level nonviolent stuff, as I keep saying, and that further limits their options. So here's how I kind of think about it is, you know, we already have a major affordable housing shortage in this country. And then you have to find an affordable home with a record. And landlords take uh, convictions, even just sometimes, like you said, arrests or police activity in general, not even a conviction uh, to initiate eviction proceedings. But, um, you know, if you have any sort of blemish on your record, uh, landlords uh, won't rent to you. Um, basically, you know, the wholesale exclusion of families that have someone with a record. Um, there was a survey that comes to mind from the Ella Baker Center, and they surveyed um, recently incarcerated people and their families. And I think something like 80% of them said that they were either ineligible for or denied housing because someone in the family has a conviction history, and I think formerly incarcerated women are, are at greater risk. So hoping that you all can talk to us about the, the housing barriers that people face once they have something on their record. Yeah, I, I, that goes into the whole issue of um, public housing and, and the historical barriers. You outlined it very well, Mike, in, in terms of policies and housing authorities that uh, anybody in the household is arrested for a, a, a drug crime uh, or, or any other crime, they're subject to being evicted and instability for the entire uh, family. Yeah. I, I was looking at a piece that the um, Legal Action Center had done 
uh, in uh, 2016, uh, eliminating barriers to housing for people with criminal records. And if you know the Legal, Legal Action Center, they're, they're pretty astute and, and well-regarded in terms of uh, putting out information about this impact, about the policies, and how these policies uh, basically attack uh, returning citizens mm -hmm. uh, and by default attacks the entire family. So it's a good piece to read, a good, good resource to put out there. This is something that certainly has been dealt with for many years. I think there is a, a, a bill that's uh, the uh, Fair Chance Housing Act uh, that um, was introduced by um, Kamala Harris in the Senate. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, just those kinds of legislation is really important to address some of those policies that have uh, been very, very harmful to folks who have been formerly incarcerated. So there was a great report done by Prison Policy Initiative, Mike, that I know you and I have shared that showed that uh, compared to the general population, um, if you have been incarcerated once, you are seven times more likely to experience homelessness. Yep. If you've been incarcerated two or more times, you're 13 times more likely. You know, add to that the fact that every year 600,000 people are leaving prison, right? Many of whom, mm -hmm. if not a majority of whom, are going to experience homelessness in the first year after their release. Even before that, 5 million people enter jail every year. Yep. And jail doesn't always mean conviction. But just being in jail for even a day can lead to a cascade of consequences, including the loss of housing, right? So yeah. why is this happening? What's, what's driving this? I think it's a combination of a couple different things, both of which, to go back to the earlier theme of this conversation, are the consequences of policy choices, right? The first is that housing is just largely inaccessible, yeah. right? W whether it's uh, the crime-free statutes that exist in 2,000 cities and 48 states across this country, the one-strike law at the federal level, um, these are examples of programs that, regardless of what people say about their intent, their impact is obvious. They lead to the wholesale exclusion of communities from access to, to affordable and secure housing. And then even if housing is accessible, right, even, with a, even if with a conviction you can find housing, then the question becomes, is it affordable, right? And if it yeah. becomes, even if it's affordable, right, can you maintain that affordability? Because again, you may not have a job, you may not be able to have a license, you may not be able to get education or healthcare or childcare because of a criminal conviction. So even if it's affordable, do you end up being able to maintain it over a long period of time, especially as rents go up every year in most places, right? So mm -hmm. again, and here we are again, cycle continues, we're back at square one in terms of housing and security, right? And I think too, there's a lot of hidden parts to this. So one of the things that, um, this is just a, a quick example, but I think it speaks to the larger problem. And a lot of places in this country, remember, four and a half million people under probation or parole. If you're under probation or parole in a lot of places in this country, one of the conditions of your supervision is that you cannot be associated with other people who are also on probation or parole. Yeah. So now you look at a, 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 a housing community that is already, you know, barely accessible, right? And someone goes there who's on probation or parole, just trying to find a way to get back home, trying to find a way to get back to their family. And little do they know, but the person next door gets arrested for something or the person two doors down is on supervision and somehow or another police officers and prosecutors find out, probation officers find out, those folks can make a decision then and there to get that person out of housing, to put them back mm -hmm. in prison or jail even, right? Yep. I mean, and so then we go back to the conversation we just had a second ago about now what does that mean for them and their family? So there's a lot of 
some relatively unnoticed drivers behind this phenomenon. Um, but the biggest one, I think, by a mile is just the reality that there has been a, a, a mandate from the public and, and private sectors in terms of the policies that are being disseminated across the country. There's been this mandate that safety and, and, and crime and, and these, you know, these types of ideas are what should be paramount for, for housing developers and for landlords and things like that. And I would just offer this, um, because it, this might come up later in the conversation, but I'll, I'll say it now in case it helps us frame some, some later thoughts. There's a big effort, or there has been a big effort by a lot of landlords and housing developers um, and housing communities to think about quote unquote crime reduction, right? Mm -hmm. And I would just suggest that from a justice perspective, um, that's not a healthy and holistic approach to understanding what's happening in people's lives. Crime is more often linked to a person than it is to an action, right? And if you don't have additional context and you're not willing to create or understand that context, crime becomes synonymous with preference. And it usually becomes synonymous with racialized preference. So all these policies directed at, quote, unquote, reducing crime or increasing safety, they may sound good. And, again, even if people mean well, and I, I believe a lot of people probably do, the impact is obvious, right? And the impact is that black and brown people or people who've been formerly incarcerated end up getting shut out of housing and put into a situation where they literally have no choices in front of them, but they still have to find a way to survive. Well, and I mean, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't actually make us safer, right? These sorts of policies are not making anybody safer. They're, they're in fact, perpetuating the, the root problems, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah they're perpetuating problems. And incarceration does not make communities safer. In fact, just the opposite, right? And in the, the jurisdictions in this country that have seen drops in incarceration have also seen drops in crime. And there has been now a commitment to have an increase in community investment. So this myth that incarceration and police and prosecutors and all this, all these mechanisms are what uh, are, are the keys to our safety is just not true. You know, safety needs to be defined on a community's own terms with a fully contextualized understanding of harm and trauma and violence and uh, economic factors that, that might underpin some of those decisions. Um, but safety in and of itself is at best an abstract term, and at worst it's a term that's deliberately and willfully misapplied to achieve certain outcomes that speak to the criminalization crises that we've been talking about. I just, you know, I think of the, just, you know, the individual and, and the the impossible decision calculus that they go through like in the like in the scenario that you mentioned Dylan the the places where if you're on parole you know and you got a, a parole officer and it, it comes with a restriction that you have to avoid contact with or, or proximity to other people uh, who've had encounters with the with the system I mean think about that right like you're on parole you, you now have a record you have to find housing that's affordable in a country where we have a mass shortage of supply then you got to find a landlord who will rent to you despite your record, and then you got to make sure that nobody else around you um, has had encounters. and And often, the only housing you can afford is located in communities that have been disinvested in, right? High poverty, under resourced areas, where probably a disproportionate number of people have had encounters with the criminal legal system because of the many systemic factors that we talked about earlier: over policing and racism. I mean. I, you know, we're the, we're the self you know, we're, we're the land of second chances, but not really. Yeah, I, mean, come I don't on. want to be a conspiracy theorist, Mike, but it almost seems too well built to be true, right? It almost yeah. seems too well constructed uh, to, to even have, like, 
to have even slid by our our, our observation for so long. Um, yeah. But I mean, yeah, this this there every piece of this leads to five other pieces, which then leads to five other pieces. I mean, we yeah. talk about paying it forward, right? If one person helps two people and each of them helps two people, that's a good thing. Well, the exact opposite is what happens in the criminal legal system. One consequence leads to two, leads to two more, and mm -hmm. you end up just, yeah, margin, wholesale marginalizing, segregating, diminishing the power of whole communities. Um, and again, it, it, you have to find a home. Yeah, you also got to find a job. Maybe have to continue your education if you'd started it or if you didn't have a chance to begin it to begin, you know, in yeah. the first place, have to childcare have to have to find all this stuff um and then yeah find a way to make rent and you know again you have to be home at a certain time too if you're on probation or parole right and you have to be within a certain zip code or within a certain radius at all times right and and god yeah. forbid that um you can't live with your mother because uh your mother is in a community where uh you know people on probation or parole can't live for certain reasons right. and then your mother gets sick and you got to go visit her but now you're out of your home and then you, you know you get revoked on probation then you lose your home and just again i mean it's almost like being in a maze where there is no exit mm -hmm. and i think that is sort of the way i would think about the criminal legal system for people who've been involved with it it is yeah. literally being trapped in a maze where you put we push you in the maze close the door behind you but then as hard as you may try there actually is no way out of this and yeah. you can keep searching and searching all you want to but every wall you run into is going to be a dead end mm -hmm. and until we literally with a sledgehammer go and knock those walls down and have different public policies that are designed to actually lift people up. Yeah. So let's uh, let's now talk about that. Let's let's talk about the solutions. Um, so obviously, you know, there there are solutions on the housing side, um, and you know, we've articulated um, we've articulated that through the campaign uh, many a time. Um, and there's solutions on the criminal justice um, side as well. So both are required. Uh, but first, let, let's talk about. Um, it, what does it what does it look like to end the mass incarceration crisis? What does it look like to fully reform this system, this maze, as you said, Dylan, that that's hard to get out of? What what is what does the fix look like? I mean, I know that this is a very complicated question, and we only have you know a few minutes here, but but take you know take your time in explaining it. What what does the solution actually look like? And uh, Mel or Dylan, whoever wants to go first. I'll, I'll start. I mean, it is a complicated question. It's been screwed up for so long. Um, I, I certainly, again, I'm going to speak from the perspective of a provider community uh, and that notion, again, I've mentioned before around uh, recognizing the importance of rehabilitation, and that's on a number of, of levels. There has to be a much stronger commitment for reinvestment on instead of incarceration into services and comprehensive services, there's usually about, for any population that's, that's uh, struggling, they use about five core services, and housing is always gonna be mm -hmm. number one on those core services, and it's relatively expensive, but there has to be that reinvestment that uh, commits to providing those resources to those individuals that I think would lead to uh, decarceration and lead to uh, a lowering the incarceration rate. But it has to go with the ability to have diversion programs, uh, the ability to do very strong uh, interventions with, with uh, children and, and, and their parents around stabilization of the, of the family, which helps to mitigate uh, 
early exposure and trauma and those things that leads kids to the criminal, the juvenile justice system into the criminal justice system. Uh, but and certainly policies and legislation. And going back to the point that Dylan made early on in this conversation, there has to be good data. We really again have to bring up that that point that we have to be able to have the correct and usable data that allows us to plan better, to allocate resources better, and really drill down and address those, those, those core problems that could, not, not guaranteed, but certainly could uh, mitigate uh, the number of individuals who wind up going to jail and certainly reduce recidivism. Mm -hmm. Dylan, you want to chime in here? Sure, and I should just preface this by saying, yes, I know I'm angry and frustrated by a lot of this, but I'm also really hopeful and optimistic. And so I hope, <laughs> I hope people who are listening aren't just like, oh, this is hopeless and it's never going to change. Yeah. The reality is that it is changing, right? And there's a couple yeah. things that are driving it, which I think speak to some of the solutions. Um, the first is there's just, there's a general um, understanding that's starting to form around the depth and scope of this problem. Now, there are people who come at this from a very fiscal perspective. They realize that we can't spend 80 plus billion dollars a year on jails and prisons in this country and get the results we're getting. I don't necessarily agree with that approach. I think even if it costs more to do better things, we should do the better things, right? But I recognize yeah. that there is a wide range of consensus emerging around the idea that we need to do something about this problem. So that's, that's hopeful. You see it in, in yep. prosecutors' races across the country. You see it in policymakers' offices. Um, people are, are, are getting hip to the fact that we have a problem and we can also solve that problem. Yep. But, you know, the second thing that gives me hope is this movement that's being led by people who've been incarcerated, right? At Just Leadership USA, we were founded on the value that those closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but often furthest from power and resources. And we're trying to flip the second half of that sentence to no longer be true, right? Because mm -hmm. when people who've experienced incarceration stand at the forefront of the movement to end mass incarceration, they tend to find enormous success. You know, I can point to one recent example here in New York City with the Close Rikers campaign. There had been a decades-long effort to close down Rikers Island, and this does get to housing, I promise, very quickly. Um, but there had been a decades-long effort to close down Rikers Island, um, and it, it felt at times like it was never going to happen. The city council just voted three weeks ago or so to close down Rikers Island, right? And that was the product of directly impacted people, survivors of Rikers, stepping up and leading that charge and saying, no, enough is enough. It's time to get this done. Now, the reason this plays into the housing conversation is because the Close Rikers campaign released uh, a Build Communities platform, right? The second half of the Close Rikers slogan was Close Rikers Build Communities. Um, and that mm -hmm. is becoming, I think, or hopefully becoming a model that other reform movements across the country can follow where we're basically saying, listen, when Rikers is closed, you're going to have a billion dollars plus in savings every year. Those billions of dollars should be directed to the communities most harmed by Rikers Island into a lot of different things, including maybe first among them, housing, yeah. right? get people homes, have homes directed towards people who are leaving jail, especially after short-term stints in jail, right? Open recognition of the fact that people who are, have been arrested or and sometimes have been charged and convicted of things, have housing directly uh, targeted to those folks. Yeah. Um, put housing where it didn't exist, right? Instead of injecting police and prosecutors uh, and, and supervision agents into a community, inject free, equitable, accessible, secure housing into these communities instead, right? And that idea of divesting out of the system and investing into community-based resources, uh, it's happening across the country, right? And I think this platform is one example of how it could look. 
but that's a really big part of what gives me a lot of hope that um, even for those folks who are coming at this from the fiscal perspective, just to close the loop on what I started saying a minute ago, um, you recognize that we've decided to put a lot of money into this, into this criminal legal system. Um, and I think that in an overarching sense, the criminal legal system can only ever do harm. It was built to do harm. Like you said at the beginning of this podcast, Mike, it's doing what it was intended to do. It's doing harm. Whereas the housing system and other community-based systems could or should be built to do healing, right? Yeah. And I think if we transfer the money and have it follow our priorities into the housing world, um, we're seeing it happen already in, in small ways across the country. But if we continue to just keep our foot on the gas there, I think we're going to see a drastic change. Um, and will we get to absolutely everyone out of jail and prison in the next few years? Probably not, right? It's a big population. It's a long march towards freedom. But I think we're getting there, and I think the way to get there is by doing what we're doing at a local level, which is investing in the community-based resources that didn't exist and haven't existed for generations, but that can now be funded by the money that we previously were wasting on jails and prisons and other mechanisms of the criminal legal system. So I am hopeful. I am optimistic. I do think it can change. Um, and I think it's starting to change pretty quickly as we speak. Um, so there's a lot of challenges. As you said, it, it, there's a lot of problems, and it feels like an uphill battle. Um, but there's millions and millions of people who are willing to get into this fight now. Um, and I think we're seeing some pretty uh, remarkable consequences already. Yeah, thanks, Dylan. And uh, for all the housing advocates that are listening out there, I think essentially what Dylan is saying is shrinking the criminal legal system and giving housing advocates the money. Is that right, Dylan? I think we can, we can uh, get behind that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people have said, you know, how do you, how do you come to the intersections of various issues as a criminal justice person? And I say, you know, it's, the criminal justice system affects a lot of other systems, so that's one entry point into the conversation. Yeah. But the other way, and I say it somewhat jokingly but kind of seriously, is I'm trying to give you all some money. <laughs> yeah, I'm, like I'm trying to I'm trying to put you in a position where you can get some checks to do some real community based work and get people out of this system and make sure they never go into the system again or never go into the system in the first place. So I am more than happy to close down my job and never have to do this work again if it means that people like you, Mike, and, and, and the people at Opportunity Starts at Home and people like Mel have the money and have the resource to do what they should have been doing long ago, which is actually building communities that support people. Um, so I hope we get there soon. Um, but in the meantime, I think just continuing to work together and finding these intersections is going to be crucial. Yeah, well said. Um, and I think the the Rikers example that you provided, I think really really speaks to, to how important um, housing is to, to criminal justice uh, reform advocates, that if we, if we are successful in ending this mass incarceration crisis, it means uh, many more people returning to their communities and rebuilding their lives. But if there continues to be a shortage of housing that's affordable and available to them, they it's hard to do that well. It's hard to reconnect and rebuild your lives with, without a home. And I think that's a central point for criminal justice advocates as well, that the the goals, I, I think, of reforming uh, the criminal legal system also require um, you know significant investments in affordable housing because otherwise people will be returning um, to, to unstable uh, housing situations. And so we need the housing stock to accommodate their return. Um, so... I'll end it with a, a last last question, which is, um, what what would you all say uh, to um, 
criminal justice reformers out there, people that have, um, you know, prioritized their their life around the goals of dismantling the the mass incarceration crisis. What would you tell them about housing? Um, you know, for some of them, maybe it's it might seem like a a whole other sector, a whole different stream of work. What would you what would you say to them about uh, the interplay of of housing and their uh, priority issue? Yeah, I, I think you hit on something really important there is that talking to, I think, to a lot of the criminal justice reformers who've done a brilliant and great job over the years, some of them don't necessarily identify with or immediately understand how these services like housing are as critical as any legislation out there, uh, that there is an education that we need to do with our fellow reformers saying that we have to put a lot of energy around, again, reinvestment of funds towards housing, getting rid of some of the barriers or all the barriers uh, that prevent uh, individuals who have been just as involved in getting stable, stabilized housing. And so there is an education that folks like me need to uh, do with uh, my compadres to say that, that this has, has to get as much of a priority and some of the other issues that that we're dealing with around criminal justice reform. Yeah, I mean, I would just echo that, and I would just say, listen, housing is a foundation, right? It's it's the building block from which I think a lot of other things can fall into place. Um, And that's not to say that if you have housing, you don't need anything else, because the reality is there's a lot of services everyone needs. But when you have a place to come home to that is centered on your own freedom and is built around your dignity and the strength of your community, you know, it becomes a lot easier to think about, you know, where are you going to go after school or, or if, you know, and assuming, again, we can provide education to folks or where you're going to eat your meal as long as we have, you know, access to food for folks across the country. But a lot of those questions that I think many of us take for granted become a lot easier to answer if you just have a home. Um, and for criminal justice folks, I think there's an emerging recognition that we need to be intersectional in our approach. Um, and there's a lot of different avenues to do that, right? But I think one of the, the key avenues for folks is this link between criminal legal reform and, and, and housing um, and housing security, particularly for people who, who are in uh, unstable conditions. Um, you know, the, the fact is that, you know, for a long time we've heard policymakers talk about the idea of housing people in jail or prison, right? This, this yeah. facility houses 6,000, this one houses 2,000 yeah. women. And I'll, just, I'll make this as clear as I can, yeah. No one in the history of this country has ever been housed in a jail or prison. They have been incarcerated or detained there. That's it, right? And if we begin shifting the mind frame from from that to one where people are housed in, oh, I don't know, homes, right? Like it becomes a lot easier to kind of bridge that gap. And I think that narrative transformation, that funding transformation, and that idea of saying instead of just shutting down facilities, instead of just limiting the ways the system can harm people, what are some things we as criminal justice folks can do to help other people, uh, you know, provide the services and, and provide the resources that this community needs? And again, it's not it's it's money, it's it's advocacy, it's partnership, it's it's, it's thought leadership, um, but really it's just seeing how these issues play into one another. And again, recognizing that housing is at the end of the day the foundational piece for a lot of people's lives. Yeah, thanks, Dylan. That's a that's a powerful way to to think about it. And you know, both Just Leadership USA and 
uh, National Association of Social Workers. You all are, you know, you're walking the walk, I think, by, by being part of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. And uh, these cross-sector partnerships are just invaluable to us, and it's how we're going to make progress going forward. Um, so I want to thank you uh, both for your, your time and your expertise. I, this was really fascinating to me. I, I love this conversation. wanted to ask one final question, um, which is, are there, are there any resources that you would point our audience to um, to learn more about this topic? I always like to give folks a, a few tidbits um, for when they stop listening to the podcast and they can, you know, what can they check out after the podcast is over? Any resources or websites that you'd point them to? Yeah, I, I did mention uh, the Legal Action Center right. um, yeah. report. I, I would uh, recommend uh, folks uh, access that online. Uh, yeah. It's good stuff. Thanks, Mel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, can I do a self-plug and say that the fact sheet yeah. that we got to work on together is, is maybe Yeah, that's true. For folks? Yeah, yeah, uh, for yeah, sure. Yeah, the Opportunity Check the Home Criminal Justice Fact Sheet. Um, and I'll make a plug, too, for one of my favorite shops in the country, Prison Policy Initiative. Um, they do amazing mm. reports, and they have a report, if you Google it, it's called Nowhere to Go, Homelessness Among Formerly Incarcerated People. Um, and you should check out all of PPI's reports, but this one in particular, for folks who are interested in this issue, really paints a pretty clear picture, not just of what's happening, but what can be done about it. Um, so I hope folks check it out. Uh, and certainly, Just Leadership USA, jlusa.org, not hard to find. Email me, call me anytime. I'd love to talk with folks who are doing this work. Um, and love to be a part of the, of the collaboration that I think we're seeing across the country. Yeah, and we pulled, um, Dylan, if I recall correctly, we pulled some of PPI's um, information into our, into the fact sheet that we built together. So, yeah, they, they do great stuff. And if yeah. anybody's um, curious where to find the Opportunity Starts at Home fact sheet um, that, that we built with uh, Just Leadership, um, if you go to opportunityhome.org, uh, at the top tab, there's a thing called sectors. Click on sectors, and then you scroll down, and you'll see criminal justice and housing, and you can pull up a downloadable fact sheet right right then and there. Um, okay, well, we're out of time. Again, this was a, an awesome conversation. I thank you both, Dylan and Mel, for your time, um, and we'll talk next time. Thank you, Mike. Cool. Thank you, Mike. All right.